From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with a holiday tradition that, well, once again, is not going to be happening. Now, take a listen to this story. This is actually from last year, but it could almost run word for word today as well. Some disappointing news for this Halloween. The Stanley Park ghost train has been cancelled and it has nothing to do with COVID-19. The park board says it has been forced to pull the plug because of mechanical issues with the antique engines and passenger cars. The park board says the trains didn't pass their recent inspection. And because some of the engines are more than 60 years old, both parts and the mechanics with specialized skills are hard to find. They say they're working hard to get the issues resolved in time for the bright night's holiday season train. They're also working with SFU's School of Sustainable Energy Engineering team on long-term solutions to update their aging fleet. So again, that was a global news story from 2022, but with the official word coming out earlier today, it could run today. The operational update is the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation regrets to announce the Stanley Park ghost train will remain at the station this Halloween while restoration work continues to ensure its safe and optimal performance. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Aaron Jasper, former Park Board Commissioner. Aaron, thank you so much for taking some time. No, it's my pleasure, Jill. You were on the board in various roles for several years. So when you see this, and and I know that this isn't the most important story, but it does kind of point to bigger questions as to what the park board is doing. When you see that this train is once again out of service, will be out of service for another major event, what goes through your mind? Well, I'm not surprised, Jill. Um, it does... It from my vantage point, it, it appeared that the previous board uh, was not as focused on maintaining the park board infrastructure and, and whether that was the community centers or, or assets like the train. And so, you know, and it, it's cited in your report, it, it is a, it's a specialized piece of equipment. The, uh, the report from last year, I believe, cited that it wasn't just the train, but, you know, tracks and other parts of the whole, the whole um piece of infrastructure was was not in good condition so uh i'm not surprised it's taken a bit of time to to get the pieces together to get the expertise together uh, i am pleased though that this board is, is showing a commitment to to refurbishing that train um i know that when i was on the board we we were briefed on its condition uh, in fact actually one point i think the, the main structure there had burnt down and we had committed to to rebuild it and so you know in the long term i think it's 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 worth having a discussion about the future of the train, but in the short term, I'm, I am happy that this board has, has made the commitment to have those trains fixed and any other any other track issues to be addressed. Um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we can we can have this train back up and running for the for the bright lights. Right. Um, in uh, Christmas time. Which, again, was, we were, I think, had that exact discussion last year as well yeah. when uh, this was announced. And you're right, the, the technical report that came out, the Technical Safety BC report said that there was corrosion, there was damage to uh, the track lines as, and cars, there was overgrown vegetation that, that disrupted the sight lines of the train and all of these things making it unsafe. Uh, doesn't that kind of point, though, to, like you said, there, there wasn't a priority put on this. There, somebody must have known, hey, if we don't keep up with this if we don't keep up regular maintenance this train's not going to work right so this this announcement that we need to happen last year though uh, was just leading up to an election and uh, so we have a new board 
who've uh, who've been in place what maybe ten months. And as I said, I, I have to say, I so far from from my vantage point, I've been impressed with the commitment they have shown to to refurbishing or rebuilding uh, park board infrastructure. And whether we're talking uh, Kitts Pool, uh, the commitment to the community centers, uh, I know there was it was in the news recently that was the the pier down at Jericho. I personally, I, I think it was a good decision to look at ways of, of preserving that infrastructure. So I think this board has demonstrated so far in their 10 months, uh, a commitment to, uh, to refurbishing and to maintaining the infrastructure, but it takes a while, right? And in this particular instance, this isn't like just bringing in an electrician, you know, maybe we've got some plumbing problems or electrical problems at a community center. This is a very specialized piece of equipment. And um, so the fact that they are uh, dedicating the resources to, to pull that all together, I think, is, is a positive sign. I, I'm not surprised that, that this train is, is not going to be up and running for Halloween. But, uh, I, I mean, I can tell you the, the popularity, especially at Christmas time. And not, not to mention the, the amount of money that is raised for the burn fund. I think uh, I'm hoping let's keep our all keep our fingers crossed that they'll be up and running for December. Well, and and exactly. And, and uh, that was my, my next question was about that in that uh, I'm sure the charities that uh, get money from this, uh, that get, get a lot of money and the donations coming in. Yes, there are still events that take place and people go, but that attraction of the train that draws so many people with that, not there charities are suffering from this as well in that not, not getting those donations. Yeah, it's not just sort of the nostalgia that we all have from our youth of going on the train. You're right. There are there's some serious implications for this train not running. And, and you know, in the park board, I don't envy their position. You know, I've, I've been there, and there is a there is no shortage of competing interests for capital dollars for infrastructure renewal. And whether, again, we've, you know, the Aquatic Centre, you know, we all remember the story of, of the facade falling off there. So they have a lot of competing needs for, for infrastructure, the pools, the rinks, all of that stuff. Um, and so, again, I, I can applaud them for at least in this instance showing it, uh, showing a commitment. I, I think there should be, a, and I'm, again, I'm, I, I'm not privy to all the, the finer details uh, of the park board um, planning process, but I think there this is be a good opportunity once we get this train back up and running. Once the park board has the has the uh, public being able to use that facility again, is to talk about what the long term plan is, because uh, from my understanding, I mean, what they're going to be doing is not a complete overhaul where the problems were in terms of track and, and refurbishing the trains. But, yeah, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of money to maintain that train. And so I think it would behoove the park board to have a, a broader discussion with the public in terms of what we would hope to see in the future with respect to the train. Right. And even like you said, with a new park board, a lot of these things happened under the previous board, whether it was the not keeping up with the track, with that, that infrastructure. So uh, there is the, the new board or the, the, now that it's happening under this board. Uh, do you think that there needs to be more transparency and that if there is a plan to phase out this train or for some reason the park board doesn't want this to be a part of Stanley Park, to be a part of these events, to at least be transparent and tell people that that's a possibility? Yeah, no, I think so, but I, I haven't seen anything that would suggest the part, this park board, this current board, is is not going to to be transparent in their decision making process. So, uh, you know, ten months out, ten months into their term, I'm I'm willing to give them the doubt. Uh, everything I've seen so far points to a commitment to getting back to the basics of improving the infrastructure. You know, my kids play a lot of sports, and I can tell you, uh, all of the sports leagues are very impressed with the commitment to. You know, bringing in lighting for sports fields and sports re- sports field renewal. So, again, all of sort of the basic parts of, of, of our, our parks and rec system in Vancouver, yeah, I think this board is showing a commitment. This is a tricky one, though. This was, I mean, I, I kind of flash back to 
we had to deal with the Bloedel Conservatory, mm-hmm. you know, when I was on the park board. There was another piece of infrastructure that had really been neglected for decades. And then, and then you know, it, it was kind of getting to that point where the, there was so much money uh, that was being sunk into it that we had to make some choices. And so we, we chose to renew it. But you, you, can't ignore, you can't ignore the infrastructure and not expect that you're going to have some big costs. So, again, the board seems to be on the right track. No pun intended, and um, and I, I really, I guess for me personally, I really, really hope that their uh, staff are able to get this thing ready for for the Christmas season. Absolutely, Aaron Jasper. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much as always for joining us. Appreciate it. That's my pleasure, Joe. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time for us to check in once again with Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. And we are talking today about more people traveling and, unfortunately, more people getting caught up, hopefully not getting caught up, though, in scams. Claire, great to chat with you once again. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. Um, I'm excited about this topic because I think there's a lot of people who are going to find this information that we're going to chat about today really useful and I know that you were in Europe just recently and my own daughter is heading to Europe really soon and I went over all of this with her and I think it's important because today we're talking about common travel scams and just how to avoid them. Yeah, and uh, being uh, kind of staying alert, and it it can be exhausting, especially uh, I spent a lot of time getting to and from places on my own, which I also I tend to be heightened, even more aware. But there are people trying to scam you all over the place. So so let's get to some of them, the top ones that that you want to make sure people know about. Well, the first is taxi overcharging. So, you know, and and I just want to be clear about this. It doesn't really matter where you go anywhere in the world. It could be here in Canada or it could be just really any country. You're going to find bad apples. And so the vast majority of people are fine. But there are dishonest taxi drivers that may take a little bit longer routes. They may refuse to use the meter or they provide counterfeit currency as change which of course, all of that leads to inflated rates. So you can avoid this by researching local transportation options and approximate fares in advance. Now, if you need to speak to someone at the accommodation you're staying or whatever, say, you know, how long, if I'm going from A to B, how much should it cost me? Um, The other thing is to use reputable taxi companies that are recommended by your hotels Uh, or seek assistance from reliable transportation apps. There's a lot of them out there. And always ensure the meter is running or that you've negotiated a fair price before you even start the ride. Yeah, it's it's such good advice. I even ran into that because when I was going, I was in Spain and I looked and I'd read about it that Uber isn't really used in a lot of places, but there were other rideshare apps that you can use in some of the cities. So I made sure that I downloaded them and put them on my phone in Canada before I went because that kind of goes to what else you were talking about. And that's Wi-Fi networks that aren't secure and you don't want to be doing that, so I think, with credit card information and such when you're in the country. That's right. Um, And you bring up a really good point. Um, Uber and Lyft aren't always available wherever you happen to be going. So do your research, do that homework and download any applicable apps well before you go and just get familiar with them. But the the fake Wi-Fi network is is a real issue. It's just basically where scammers set up these fake Wi-Fi networks in popular tourist uh, tourist areas just to trick users into connecting. 
And what they do is they can then steal personal information or install malware on your device. So to avoid this, I recommend that you use trusted and secure Wi-Fi networks wherever possible. So if you have to use a Wi-Fi that's public, really be sure to verify the network name with the establishment before connecting. So there are the, the fake ones are going to look really similar, like one letter off or something. The other option is do what I use and use a VPN. And I know that those people out there are going, what is that? It's a virtual private network. It's just for added security. Um, if you don't know, then just be sure that when you are connecting to those public ones, you're clicking onto the right option. That is good advice uh, to keep in mind uh, because people do want to be connected and people are traveling more with their phones and that. So very good advice. Uh, People also travel. Of course, you want to try the food in whatever country you're going to and make sure you're all part of that. But that, too, can be part of a scam. Yeah, we've seen this lately. Um, It's just, you know, it it again happens all over. And and food is such an important part. And and you do want to really take advantage of all the local cuisine. So if you are using a street vendor uh, as, as you're, you know, where you're buying food, or even restaurants, just be prepared that it's not the, the street vendor or the, the restaurant, but there may be staff who try to overcharge you for items. Um, maybe they'll provide you incorrect change or add an unexpected charge to the bill. So my advice for avoiding this is, Again, research popular and reputable street vendors or restaurants in advance. Of course, I keep saying that, but homework really helps. (laughs) But also by confirming prices before ordering and asking for a menu with the prices listed. And also be sure to pay attention to that final bill and then count your change really carefully. So, you know, familiarizing yourself with the coins and the currency and the bills for each place that you may go because you know if they're putting in a different country's currency that's worth buttons you don't want those bills no no not at all and you don't want it to ruin the experience either right everybody wants to have fun and and support the businesses but not not have that kind of sour the whole experience yeah and you know when we're talking about all of this that's one of the other things that i want to bring up i'm a very cautious traveler but i don't ever let it like ruin my time i'm I use common sense and I do my homework, but I'm not like heightened all the time. I mean, obviously I am if I'm walking in an area that's dark um, and, and doesn't have proper street lighting or, and I don't even do that. Like I just don't go in those types of places. I mean, common sense kind of guides me away from that. Um, one that I want to talk about, one common scam, it's kind of been around since, you know, Adam was a boy, but mm-hmm. pickpocketing and the distraction techniques because um, pickpockets will often work in crowded tourist areas and use distraction techniques. So they might just bump into you. They might ask you for directions or they might create a commotion to steal your belongings. So to avoid being taken advantage of, you really do need to stay vigilant in crowded places. I'm not saying don't go to them, but you do need to just be aware and keep your belongings really kind of close if you're a guy, don't put your wallet in your back pocket. Um, so this would be especially important in tourist hotspots. And a money belt, I know a lot of people don't like these, but they're quite in fashion right now. <laughs> but a money belt, or like a, a fanny pack, they're, 
you can wear them crossbody with the, the bag in front of you. I know there's a whole bunch of popular lines that have them that are kind of like 50 bucks or under. Um, and uh, uh, this, I think, should go without saying wherever you're traveling. Avoid displaying all the expensive things like jewelry and watches and cameras and cell phones. Um, and again, of course, be cautious of strangers who approach you because their buddy might be the one who's trying to pick your pocket. Right. I, I will fully admit I shouldn't admit to doing this because after all of the years we've been talking about travel, I should know better. But I was at a very busy grocery store in Madrid and I was just buying a few things and I had my cell phone in the back pocket of my jeans, which I do hear all of the time and I, I never really think about it. But I had it in my back pocket and the security guard in the store actually came up to me and and kind of tapped me on the shoulder and in Spanish and, ref, and, and using you know hand gestures pointed at my phone and, and and was very stern saying do like don't put that in your back pocket put it in your front pocket your your phone's going to be stolen which I thought was nice of him for doing that but I really uh, also realized I had let my guard down and that that was a silly thing to be doing uh, just having the phone in the back pocket I know but you're on vacation and everyone's <laughs> guard kind of goes down yeah. a little it's just yeah, you know, that's that's kind of the thing. One of the things that um, I recommend, and so that you wouldn't have to put your phone in your back pocket, is I always travel with a crossbody with anti-theft features. So the anti-theft features have a couple of things. They, they, first of all, they have, my one has an RFID pocket inside of it so that I can put any credit card so that no one can take the information off of the little strip that's, you know, so sensitive. The other thing is, is that on the crossbody um, strap itself, there's a wire on both sides, so you can't cut through it. Mm. It also has like chicken wire inside of the the nylon or whatever it's made of, so that people can't use an exacto knife type thing to slit it and pull out the contents, which is really common. And so you can find these on even like Amazon for around the thirty dollar mark. And I would totally recommend investing in it, especially if you are a traveler. Um, and I guess with the Couple, two other things I really want to mention is one of the best places to get advice on any of this type, type of thing, no matter where you're going, is just to know about what's going on in a country is to visit our government's website for travel, which is travel.gc.ca. They want like us to travel safely as Canadians. So there's a lot of useful information on there. Really trust your instincts. And um, I can't stress this enough, but your important documents, your passport, your nexus, if you have had to have a visa issued for it, um, the country you're visiting, all of that, if there's a hotel safe, use it. Don't walk around and use that as the ID that you may need when you're, you're out and about. It should always remain safe. That is the, those are the things that you need the most because you can't get home without yeah. them. And so I, 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 I have one pocket in my carry-on bag for important documents. And I've seen people stress out, who can't find their boarding pass, they can't find their passport. They're, if you always use the one pocket to take it out of and put it back into, you're never going to be in that situation. Um, travel is just, it's one of those things that we love to do and it's our downtime, but to do it and avoid getting scammed, you just have to trust your gut and you have to just be a little guarded. No, it's a very, very good advice. Well, now that we've scared everyone so much into what you have to do, <laughs> let's uh, let's get some deals. Where can people get going? 
Well, I first deal I've got is to Maui. Um, you know, they're desperate for travelers, and there's some pretty good deals out there. There's a small window, um, November 28th through until December the 7th, where Aaron Seven Nights in a Condo Hotel, 1169. The taxes are 495. If there's um, anyone who has Dubai on their bucket list, a great package um, that's valid right through until mid-December. It's seven nights accommodation, nine meals are included, sightseeing tours and transfers. It's not a group tour. It's just like this great package. You would add air to this, but the package itself is 1429 tax included. And I know this is a long way off, but it was so popular this year that I wanted to share it now because it did sell out last year. This is a 12-night British Isles cruise. It's happening June the 23rd, 12-night cruise with a 50 U.S. dollar onboard credit, 1539, the taxes of 338. Whew, for 12 nights, that seems incredible. Yeah, and the itinerary is just outstanding. Like, it's just, it, you'll ha- it, you, it's all on the website, travelbestbets.com, but I'm telling you, the itinerary is so awesome for that British Isles cruise. I mean, being born in Edinburgh, Scotland, I love the British Isles. So um, I had to share that deal. All right. Lots of great deals. Like you said, all of the details on that on the website. Claire, thank you so much. And we will talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Talk to you next week, Jill. There were a few details about this on that newscast. The BC SBCA seizing nine dogs and two cats from an individual who was not supposed to be owning any animals. And Eileen Drever is joining us now, Senior Officer of Protection and Stakeholder Relations with the BC SBCA, to talk a bit more about this particular case. Eileen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, some of the details uh, of this uh, investigation people may find uh, disturbing, but also a, an important one to to bring to light uh, as to what has happened here. Can you take us back to when you first got a report? This report came in from the RCMP about this uh, potential case uh, of animal cruelty. What did you? What were you? Or what was the SBCA alerted to? Well, we were advised by the RCMP that an individual who had been convicted of animal cruelty in other provinces was squatting on Crown land in the East Kootenays. As a result, we, uh, we attended along with the RCMP and found nine animals to be in distress and they were seized. We had a warrant for the, for the property and they were seized. Um, the, the dogs, uh, they, there was no access to adequate shelter. They were tethered. There was no, uh, the only water provided was contaminated. The dogs were living in piles of like um, organs from deer and elk. Um, some of the dog have ear infections. A couple have urinary tract infections. Um, one dog has uh, rashes on, on his skin. Um, and then some of them and the cats have eye discharges, possible infections in the eyes, and the coats on the animals were matted. So all in all, they were they were they were definitely in distress, and it's really really unfortunate that this individual hasn't learned from her past her past experiences, if you will. Um, although I cannot, I'm not able to disclose the name. This individual was charged in 2010. 80 dogs were seized from her at that time in Saskatchewan. She received a 10-year prohibition from owning animals. And then in 2015, um, 
authorities removed 201 dogs from her. And the conditions, as the judge said, were absolutely abhorrent. Um, Dogs had wounds on them and they were found dehydrated, starving and chained in the yard. Um, So uh, there were also dead animals on the property. Mm. Um, A psychiatric assessment uh, states that uh, this individual was not suffering from any mental health issues. So I'm just dumbfounded how anyone can treat a sentient being that way. How, as well, how does somebody go from from being charged, from being found guilty, from being given a, a prohibition on owning animals, to then only five years later being found with more than 200 dogs? I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm not sure if this individual was breeding them. Um, but, you know, a- animals, it's really unfortunate, but they're not treated as sentient beings and they're treated as disposable. And this individual clearly uh, didn't have a problem um, when she was found the first time, found guilty the first time, nor the second time. And now these animals that are now in our care, again, I have no idea why she had them. No idea. And you mentioned it's unclear if she was breeding the animals, but in this case, do you do you know where the nine dogs and the two cats that were seized in the East Kootenai, do you know where they had come from or how long they had been with her? No, we have no idea. We have no idea. Um, but, you know, the conditions of them, uh, rightly or wrongly, would, to me, make it clear that they've been in her care for quite some time. What does this say as well then to the fact that, that this is now an investigation, like you said, you had been alerted by the RCMP. What what stops people from, from doing this, even when they've been ordered by the courts, part of a previous penalty is to not own animals? Well, nothing really if they're transient. Um, you know, it's hard to keep track of people, but... Um that there really is nothing. You know, I believe these charges in Alberta and Saskatchewan, they were um, provincial charges. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to charge, recommend charges, I should say, under the Criminal Code of Canada, which would apply right across Canada. So hopefully, um, hopefully uh, these charges will will be accepted. It's not up to the SPCA. It's up to Crown Council. Right. Um, you mentioned yeah. the, the, the state that these animals were in when they were seized. <laughs> how is there an update or can you tell us at all how they're doing now? Well, just by coming into our care and receiving the veterinary care that they need, they're improving. Um, they're, they were under-socialized. Um, and very fearful, and we, we, you know, we're working on rehabilitating them. So um, I believe they're they're improving, and um, well, that's what they need. They need lots of love and care, and that's what they're getting with the BCSPCA. And how are things as far as I know? We talk about this, and people always want to help. But are are there a lot of animals right now up for adoption? And I would imagine these, once they are better, these ones too, will be looking for their forever homes. Well, hopefully. Now, I, I've explained in the past when when the SPCA removes animal from an, animals from an individual, they can dispute a seizure. Um, then, if they disagree, if we if we determine these ad- these animals should not be going back to their home, then the owner or caregiver can apply to the BC Farm 
Industry Review Board. And they are an independent body and they can determine, they will determine whether or not the animals are returned. Now, the, the owner of these dogs, she has until Friday to dispute the seizure. So far, we've heard nothing. So I'm not sure if she's going to dispute. And if she fails to dispute, these, these animals will go up for adoption fairly quickly. And and so apart from, like you said, the, the ailments that they were under socialized and they, they didn't have access to water and, and some infections, uh, it sounds like these are these are things that these animals will be able to be rehabilitated. And, and like you said, up, if she doesn't dispute up for adoption. Yes, absolutely. They will they, they will all. I believe they will all go up for adoption. Um, the the the, uh, the conditions are treatable. All right. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for this. Uh, and you mentioned as well, so recommending charges. Uh, we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens next with this case. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. This is kind of an extra version of what we when we generally do beer Friday we do one Friday of the month where we talk to our beer expert but we are having a, an extra edition of this today because you might not know this but today is Canadian Beer Day and I believe this is the fifth time that we have had Canadian Beer Day on October 4th so joining us now is CJ Healy the president of Beer Canada CJ thank you so much for taking some time today my pleasure, Jill. And happy Canadian Beer Day to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful day to celebrate everything Canadian. Well, and there is so much about beer that, that maybe people don't think about, or it's not apparent right away when you think about beer and, and just how Canadian it is. How did you get involved or become so passionate about beer? I started in the beer industry to fund my undergraduate studies working part-time in a beer store. And I just loved the industry and never really moved that far away from it. <laughs> and so certainly you've seen a lot of changes then when it comes to the industry and, and beer itself. What would you say is the, the biggest change that you have seen as far as following this along? I think the biggest change is the way the consumer has changed, right? Canada is so much different than it was when I started working and certainly much different than uh, when my parents were uh, buying beer. Uh, we travel a lot more internationally. We, our food and, uh, tastes are, have changed and evolved. Uh, we are much more interested in sort of where our food and beverages are coming from or grown. Uh, and so the beer industry, brewers around Canada have sort of followed that trend and tried to meet the consumer where their needs are at. And why do you think it is such a, a Canadian, not that only Canadians drink beer, but it does seem that Canadians have a particular appreciation for it. Why do you think that is? It's tied right back to the, our history and our culture. It's one of the first industries that was really a Canadian industry. Uh, we looked around and we saw that we could grow the finest grains in the world. We saw all this pure water and we had these immigrants coming from countries that had sort of the brewing heritage and knowledge. You put that together and Canada sort of skyrocketed in terms of world brewing. And what about the, the changes we've seen recently or, or what seems like the kind of, not a, a complete shift, but going, say, from mass-produced beer to craft breweries and those smaller breweries taking up space on farms and, and making up really different tastes and different flavors of beer? That, what, what do you think about kind of that shift from mass-produced to smaller batches? 
I, th- I think it's another example of how all consumer products have become much more niche oriented. Uh, Canadian consumers are much more discerning. Uh, they want different taste experiences, different occasional experiences. And so that diversity of choice is what drives them. Uh, experimental, uh, innovation, all those things uh, are incredibly important to how consumers today make their consumer consuming decisions. And so I think that is reflective of the beer category today. How big of a player is it when we talk about the Canadian economy and and beer itself as far as is the, the, the money that it brings in or, or what it puts into the economy? It's really huge. And what's really unique about Canadian brewing is that it's from coast to coast, right? It's a, uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast, big communities, small communities, rural, urban, all of it. And we're primary manufacturers. So we take very uh, modest grains, convert them into a consumable product, add a tremendous value through branding. So all of that together means that we're contributing about $14 billion to the economy. Hmm. And, and providing a lot of jobs, too, I would imagine. Absolutely. So we, there's about 1,300 brewers in Canada, and they directly employ about 21,000 people. But again, because of that breadth of scope of operations, we actually support about 150,000 jobs. Hmm. And did it change at all? Did, did people's habits change? And I mean, habits have changed in so many ways through the pandemic and even just through the years, again, with the abundance of different flavors and types of beers. Are you seeing a change in what consumers want? Well, the biggest change that we're facing, and it's kind of a challenge, is that a huge amount of our consumption is uh, taken out of home. So that's in bars, restaurants, pubs, festivals, right? It's a very social drink. You tend to drink beer along with your neighbors, your friends, and when you're out and about. And so that restrictions that happened through COVID and have carried on to some extent has really uh, been challenging for the beer industry. Uh, and until we get back or the consumer gets back to sort of their normal behaviors of wanting to go out, wanting to uh, visit their local pub or tap room, uh, we will continue to be sort of climbing back that mountain. Hmm. And, and what about prices? Uh, we've certainly seen the price of so many things going up and uh, the, you can uh, see a big difference in types of beer and prices of beer. There, there must be a limit, though, I would think, or a, a, a kind of a, the, the tipping point of how much people are willing to pay. Absolutely. And we are there, I think, Jill. Uh, we have faced as a brewing industry like huge cost increases, like a lot of other uh, agri-food processing industries. But like our barley costs are up about 70%. Our packaging costs are up about 40%. Freight costs have doubled. And brewers have tried to eat as much of that as they could. So let's say maybe 50% of that cost increases passed along in the prices. But the consumer is feeling pinched all over, right? Uh, rental costs, housing costs, interest rates. So it's, it's really uh, challenging times in terms of trying to find that right balance in how much of the cost you can absorb uh, in the business versus how much you can pass on to the consumer. Uh, and when we talk about uh, beer as well, I, I'm not sure if this is something that uh, that you look at, but it does seem, or I've noticed at least anecdotally, it looks as though in addition to all of the, the different flavors and types of beers that are available now, there are more and more uh, non-alcoholic beers that look like real beer. They try and, and, and have that same similar taste. Are you seeing a, a lot of or a shift in that people want the taste of beer, want the social aspect of beer, but are trying to kind of cut back? on the amount of alcohol 
Jill, absolutely right. That is, pardon me. That is the hottest segment within the overall beer category. Non-alcoholic beers are increasing about 20, 25% a year the last few years. And it's the, the reasons behind a consumer choosing a non-alcoholic beer, now that we do have these fabulous tasting non-alcoholic beers, really ranges. You know, sometimes it's the old reasons about, you know, today I don't really feel like drinking. Uh, but also uh, there's a whole bunch of other reasons uh, uh, that are impacting those decisions. And we're really uh, investing in that part of the segment because the consumer is there, so we want to meet them where they are. Do you have a favorite beer? Not to put you on the spot, but I know you've you've probably tasted, tested a few. Do you have a favorite that you go back to? Well, I, I think for me, it really depends on the season. So uh, in the summer and the fall, I start sh- switching from more Pilsner styles to Porters and Stouts. Uh, and around Thanksgiving is the per- perfect time uh, to sort of make that transition. And uh, I know I've seen, well, I've, the pumpkin ales were out, uh, I think, weeks ago. And, and, and again, uh, maybe something that you have once once in a while, not uh, or, or more than that if you want to. But that, too, does seem like a bit of a more of a treat than something you would grab grab for uh, on a regular basis. I think the consumer is exactly in that space as well. They want to try different things at different times. And the, the days of only having sort of one beer or your favorite beer, maybe are a little passe, and people are really have sort of a, a, a broader portfolio of, of brands and, and styles that they go to. Where do you see it going from here as things, things continue to kind of evolve? And like you said, people get back into that atmosphere of hopefully being social and sharing a beer if they want with somebody. Where do you see things in the industry going from here? I'm very optimistic. I think the worst is well behind us. Uh, We are committed to investing and growing the beer market here in Canada. And so as long as the governments, provincial and federally, uh, keep out of our way uh, and try to uh, do the best they can to nurture this sector, which has been around for over 150 years, and we just want to make sure that it's there for the benefit of future generations as well. Well, CJ, thank you so much for joining us and chatting more about this. Appreciate your time today. And again, happy Canadian Beer Day to you. Thank you, Jill. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.